Hey everyone, this is Mary coming to you from our summer break. On today's episode, we have yet another gem from our Patreon archive for you. We'll be discussing Dear America, Voyage on the Great Titanic. So if you were a Titanic head or not, if you saw the movie once or 20 times, this episode is for you. We'll get into the fascination with the ship, the Titanic Historical Society, do not get me started on that group. And, you know, is it safe to watch Survivor videos on YouTube? I don't know, but we sure did that for this episode and we talk about it. So please do enjoy it. And remember that if you join our Patreon, you get one extra bonus episode every month on a topic that we think lives in the world of this show, just like this Dear America book, and access to our Discord community where we have channels where folks are discussing all kinds of things from crafting to TV shows they like, music they listen to. We've been watching the Summer Olympics together it's a really great community so please do check that out if that's of interest and we hope you're all doing well and we'll see you on our next episode Welcome, everyone, to American Girls, the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. Welcome to our latest Patreon episode where we're reviewing things that we imagine are in the world of this podcast. Uh, I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. I had to think about it there for a second. I I I mean, maybe that speaks to how I'm doing. How are you doing with everything? You know, I feel like we chose a book about a natural disaster at the absolute best time. I think so too. I think so too. And it's it's having a strange effect on me reading this book. You know, I will share that about a week ago, week and a half ago, Ada and I decided to postpone our wedding for now. We'll likely still get married around the same date, but we're going to celebrate our wedding next June, which is very sad. It's been sitting with that. And who knew that, you know, reading a book about a human tragedy would give me life but here we are that's what happened here's the thing about the titanic it really has nothing to teach us because it's really the story of a man refusing to follow directions and not heed any warnings and bring thousands of people into danger there's just no parallel no resonance <laughs> to the world that we live in yeah i was gonna say i mean I, I wish it was a little bit closer to our times so that you know it could give us some kind of lessons some kind of truths some kind of something we could empathize with. But, you know, sometimes the past really is a foreign country. The thing about the Titanic is, like, you were asking me to gauge my own interest level. It's always an iceberg. Like, I think I've hit it. And then there's 80% more where yeah, it's like... you just don't know. You can... I went through a Titanic phase. It's like, most people have their ancient Egypt phase. I had that. Yep. I segued seamlessly into Titanic time. I did one of those 3D puzzles of the Titanic, and it was super hard. Oh, my God. How old are you? I was I was too young. What do you mean? You were like, too young? <laughs> like, the box for the puzzle was, like, recommended age is this, and you were like, I don't care. I need this. You know that Lifetime movie, She's Too Young? That was actually based my God, on... That was a very intense movie. <laughs> I, I know. I shouldn't. Um, but that was, that was ripping off my experience with the Titanic 3D puzzle. Um. No, I was very young. I was very obsessed with Titanic. Um, I was looking for those like discovery books to see which of them I owned. I think I mostly read about the Titanic at the library. Sure. Um, but no, from probably like seven to present, I've been interested in the Titanic. 
I think I'm on a similar trajectory. I think the thing, I have not had a 3D puzzle in my past. As you know, I reject puzzles as unnecessary (laughs) and frustrating causes of minutiae which I reject in the name of Satan and God knows what else. But I am surrounded by people who love puzzles and I more than respect that. (laughs) My love of the Titanic, it's like I was in the closet with my love of the Titanic and like, please hear me out on this. (laughs) I come from an extremely Irish family, like Irish, Italian, Catholic is like a very popular mix here in New England. And I am certainly that. And my dad, his love of Irish history, like, okay, my dad had us from a young age listening to the Clancy brothers every time we set foot in his car, which is like a good news, bad news situation, like learning about Irish history, this and that. And so when I got into the Titanic, roughly same time as you, basically my dad was like, let me sit you down and tell you why the Titanic is a story about how Irish people and other poor people were basically murdered by rich people after they had built the ship in the first place. Mm, which like that's all true and yet then I was going up to my bedroom where I was secretly reading you know years later like Edith Wharton books could not get enough of like gilded age rich people rich white people history sort of embarrassing now but like also I still love that even as though that has like absolutely nothing to do with my lived experience which is perhaps why I love it and I was like honestly the Titanic for me is fascinating because it's like the John Jacob Astor of it all, like the JP Morgan conspiracy of it all, like all of that, the opulence, the beauty, all of it, the luxury. And, but it's like that you couldn't really get into that in my house. So at a certain point I had it, we went to the exhibit, which we will get into. And I had to be like, I understand looking at the labor materials is interesting, but it's like, I really need to get into what the wallpaper looked like in the dining room. I mean, we were quite young when the film, the feature film Titanic with Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio came out, right? And yet by that point, I was like, I've already been in this. Right. I've gone down with this ship, to quote Dido, many times. (laughs) Now, I want to do a quick fact check on myself. Um, Just to be clear, also, we are going to talk about a Dear America book. Um which was very important to us. Yeah, so we were 10 when the Titanic film came out. Right. But by that point, it's like I'm several years into like an investigation. Also, what was so critical at that time was Robert Ballard is from Rhode Island. I will say that. Like he is a Rhode Islander. There we go. In, in every sense of the yep. word that I think matters. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but in addition to land-grant institutions, um, University of Rhode Island is a sea-grant institution, which means that they have um, like property access and do research on the water, on the ocean. And Bob Ballard comes from that world. So I'm not saying this is like a full Rhode Island story, but just like 80%. He is, of course, the person who finds the Titanic supposedly. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's an important point to add, you know. And... <sighs> I don't know when we were going to get into this, but I made a discovery in preparing for this episode. I shared it with you yesterday. Yeah. You know, like we're we're checking out every lead we can to figure out what's <laughs> going on with the Titanic. Yeah. I discovered an organization called the Titanic Historical Society, which then led me to a documentary about filmed at one of their meetings in the 70s. And we will get into that. Yeah. There has not been a documentary that has filled me with so much wonder, outrage, and joy simultaneously in quite some time. 
So it takes a British perspective to get at the clinical truth of what went wrong with Titanic, right? Like errors that were made, like human fallacies. But I think it took an American perspective to turn what really is a story of like class warfare and betrayal between the classes into a romance. That's true. That's exactly what happened. The Dear America book that we chose is called Voyage on the Great Titanic. And part of why we chose this is you get a bit of both. She is a British girl who serves as as a companion to an American woman on the Titanic. And we can talk about how successful that is at bridging those two worlds. Yeah, it's a really interesting perspective because it's kind of like trying to have it both ways. Like if you've seen the film that you know that this idea of like how um you know stark the class distinctions were on board of like first class second class third class or like steerage and how like kate winslet is like loves almost like vacationing or slumming as they call it in this book by going down to third class and dancing with irish immigrants and you know making out with jack and the car scene and this and that So it's not her, she can like vacation there because it's not her life. Um, But she can navigate all those levels. But obviously the people in third class can't come up to first class and so on. So I I do think it's an interesting choice to be like, here's someone who's literally an orphan living in a convent school or an orphanage who then gets Mm -hmm. suddenly to be a companion of a first class, like very rich American kind of being our eyes through this voyage And I do wonder kind of like how successful it is because her experience is also kind of isolating for her class. Like as she notes in the beginning of the book, like her experience is sort of like very confined to the orphanage. She has not been outside the walls of the orphanage in five years since her arrival. This this author, like she's also winking at you a lot in the book because the orphanage where she's being raised is located in Whitechapel, which I think many Americans have one main association with, which is Jack the Ripper. Mm -hmm. And there's even a a small kind of throwaway line in this book of how, like, that's all anyone knows about her. And what I think is interesting is, like, it supposedly starts with this kind of, like, English location, this perspective of this young girl who is, her father's Irish, she's growing up in England, and it's really about her becoming American rather than, like, a a diary from an American like it's about this process of becoming and what that looks like yes um which frankly I had forgotten I just did not remember that that was the journey that's underlying this book right in a way it's like a total inversion of the melting pot narrative like on Mm. the surface like she's not melting she's actually freezing um in the waters but also the the tried and true issues of the melting pot persist which is that you know, in some ways, I think the sinking of the ship is meant to be like this great equalizer in the moment. And yet, you know, if we take the melting pot metaphor as a guide, the melting pot is sort of a fantasy because it imagines that when people come to the United States, all of our early previous national affiliations melt away and we all become Americans. And yet, as we know from American history, not everyone melts the same. So if you are not white, um, if you are from a nationality or an ethnic group, that is non-English speaking, um, you will not melt or can be considered, you know, as integrated as other groups. Mm -hmm. So I think it's an interesting choice. And I I think it's an interesting inversion. I don't know, I guess we can talk as we go on about how successful we think it is. But I think it's an important point you make about how this is really a book about becoming American. 
I'm just curious because I know you've done a lot of your own family story. When we were researching, um, some of my ancestors came at different times. And on my father's side, this is actually right around the time when my paternal great-grandfather immigrated to the United States. And then a few years after the Titanic sent for my paternal grandfather and great-grandmother. So they stayed behind in England, um, in Manchester, and then came over afterward. Hmm. Exactly what you're saying about like this process of becoming, like what happens on this journey across the seas, what happens when you enter. One of the things you learn if you look really deeply into your family history, depending on what class your ancestor came in, you'll have more or less documentation about their processing. Mm -hmm. And so people are naturalized in different ways and sort of like the thickness of that naturalization process when it happens or the thickness of the process by which they go through an Ellis Island or a port depends on their class. Mm -hmm. So when my great grandfather came over, and he was still saving money. Um, we have more documentation on that than when he sent for his wife and child who he'd left behind because he sent them over in a higher class. Oh, so interesting. They actually don't inspect with the same rigor people of a higher class, not because they don't get sick, but because they mapped disease onto poorer people. So we have this like much richer understanding of my great grandfather as compared to this other set of the family that he sent for later. Hmm. Yeah, I the only story I know um, is that Fluffy, who I've talked about on this show, her mother immigrated from Ireland. Actually, both sides of my family are from County Cork, the same county that um, Margaret Ann's father is from and from a town called Skull specifically. And when my grandmother's mother immigrated, we have some documentation because she came over with her sister in um, not as good conditions as then later relatives. But all I know is that when she and her sister were emigrating, they had some money that they were going to save for the trip divided. And they each had China that they were bringing with them mm. produced in the county that was going to be their wedding China someday should they get married. Her sister decided to pay someone to professionally pack her China because she didn't want it to smash. And my great grandmother was frugal, shall we say, and decided to wrap the china in her own clothing because she didn't want to pay money for that. And when they arrived, um, her sister's china was all smashed mm -hmm. and my great grandmother's china was fine. So that's sort of like the story they tell about her, that she was like this kind of practical, um, you know, adaptable kind of person. And also that she married an American the first time around, an Irish American, and he got Ooh. TB. And then listen to this, Allison. If you had TB and you needed, you know, fresh air, good climate, um, where is the last place you would send this person to recuperate? New York City. <laughs> that's true. Although oh, okay. um, that's true. But she actually sent him to her parents in Ireland. This person oh. had never been there. She was like, he's deathly ill. What do I do? Okay, I'm going to send him like second, third class to Ireland. And then he gets there and dies. And she's oh, like, oh, that's awful. Oh, well, um, anyway. And then she married an Irish immigrant after that, who's my great grandfather. Great. Yeah, great grandfather. But um, yeah, so that's a wild ride, to say the least. You know, honestly, not unlike our protagonist here, Margaret. <sighs> Let's get and into it. Well, and I wasn't trying to segue away, just like she loses her parents very young and mm -hmm. is very sort of matter of fact about that and how she's ended up in an orphanage. 
And when she's presented with this opportunity to go on a ship, part of why she takes it to be this companion is her brother has already left her behind to travel to the United States to set up a life there, presumably for the two of them down the road. And I think something that like always, always strikes me about people in this time period, like let's say 1890 to 1920s, um, was looking through genealogical records for something else entirely and it was records of this one part of the azores and it's like all these people ended up with godparents and other like actual parents living in lowell in these baptismal records in the 1890s and it's like this cluster of families where we think of people in the past without cell phones without what we have today as being so disconnected but they maintained these bonds in these very specific ways and made these like huge gestures. Like this girl's brother is a teenager and he leaves her behind at the orphanage, travels to the US on a ship, is sort of waiting for her and then comes to her when she finally makes it to the US off the Titanic. And they kind of try to pick up where they've left off. It's like the strangeness of that was so common. Yes. Yes. Like that's actually not weird in that time period, but I think as we're all experiencing that isolation of distancing right now, it's like, how? But they did. Yeah. I mean, I think all the time about the kind of introduction of the magazine or newspaper feature, uh, Misconnections, which is also mm. roughly from this period, where you could be riding on a trolley car and you like see someone you think is cute, and then you put a notice in the paper that's like, hey, um, lady wearing the velvet you know, red dress on the, this trolley at this time last week. Like, I think you're cute. Here's my, like, please write me back or something, write to the newspaper. But in this period, it's like you had so many, you know, actual connections that seem beyond the scope of reason or understanding of just as you're saying, reading this diary to me, you have to check yourself because it's like, surely this is like almost caricature level um, mm. tragedy in her life and also the extremes of things that would have to happen for him to find her upon her arrival um, with the Titanic landing or even if it had just been a normal journey like all the things that could have gone wrong that a lot of times didn't or people just made connections or found each other it's so insane to us now but was so these networks were so solid with just human connection it's also you know the capacity to be someone else is I think was so much greater back then because you know we've talked about this before with like confidence men or pretenders you know it's not that you were whoever you said you were but without the apparatus of you know the passport is coming you know all these things are being developed still but even when you look at immigration records to some degree it's pretty much all self-reported right like you know you kind of are who you say you are but then by the same token the other people have this like wild latitude. Whereas today, like you scan your passport and you fit the biometrics that you have already plugged into the system or you don't. Right. Back and I mean, then, yeah. Yeah. It's a I, whim. Like, it's, nope. <laughs> it's a total whim. You could change your name. You could change your ethnic background if you wanted. You could change literally anything. I mean, I think in America, we are sort of in love. We romanticize this narrative of reinvention all the time, that this is both a place where if you work hard enough, you can be anything you want and you can reinvent yourself at any time. And whether either of those things are true, I think is easily mm-hmm. debatable. But I think your capacity to reinvent yourself is complicated by the day, at least in our world, where you know this morning on the news, I heard them talking about 
the capacity to use our cell phones to track how many people with whom we've had contact who have tested positive for COVID-19. Now, that's a public health concern that's wrapped up in so many privacy and surveillance issues, but I think it points to the fact that you can never fully escape the state's reach or their um, identification of you, and you can't really escape, you can't really redefine that that easily anymore. If you want to think about this in your own life, you know, growing up in the age of the internet, think back to every internet account you've ever had. Like, Hmm. think back to your MySpace journal, your live journal, your did you have a GeoCities page, you know, your early Twitter account that you've long since abandoned. We've left a graveyard of versions of ourselves online that if nothing else tell us that the kind of um, slipperiness of identity that exists in this Dear America book has long passed us by, RIP. Margaret, yeah. Margaret. I mean, she could be anyone she wants. <laughs> it, it's true. But then, you know, like as we were saying before, but she chooses to be a sister first and foremost. Like she chooses like when she gets off of the rescue ship and she lands in New York City. We're not doing like a super detailed plot because it's like she's on the Titanic, it sinks, you right? Get it. Like, <laughs> like, 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 like she has some class anxiety because she's poor and she's been given nice outfits and she reunites with her brother in New York City. Like, th- this is what goes on. That's the this plot. book is longer than we thought. I'm gonna say <laughs> we both didn't adequately allot enough time. I'll say that for this like, book. Like, think. Think in your mind how long you think a Dear America book is triple because this was 180 pages. We weren't prepared for that. We were we, we were not, not prepared. I mean, I think that's a good opportunity, though, for us to stop for a second and offer a brief history of this series, which started yeah. in, what, 1998? Hold on a second. Let me look at and my notes. And this is a Scholastic production. This is a Scholastic production. It started in 1996. This book is from 1998. And the first Dear America um, is the Diary of Remember Patience Whipple, Mayflower, 1620. I Um, have that book. Me too. Somewhere. Um, The Revolutionary War Diary of Abigail Jane Stewart is the second one of the same year. There's a Civil War one, uh, a diary of an enslaved girl at Belmont Plantation or an Oregon Trail, Irish Mill Girl. I had that one. Um... I also remember the Valley Forge one. Like, there's there's many. And it was um, canceled as a series in 2004 and then brought back in 2010 with new covers. And they also got rid of the ribbon bookmarks, which I think is a mistake because I love those. Huge um, mistake. Do you know where the mill girl works? That's a flex. She works in Lowell. She does work in Lowell. Of course. Um. So one of our listeners reached out and we were talking about what I think makes the Dear America books iconic, which is their beautiful binding, their sharp colors, and of course the ribbon that you use as a bookmark. Of course. And like thinking about younger Allison, bedecked in overalls, bucket hat, putting the ribbon down to like stake my claim on the page. I found in my copy of this book, I had made like a little like subject header that said Titanic, like I'd written in highlighter and then put like five lines underneath to emphasize like this is the start of your Titanic books. Like apparently I thought that was important. Sure. Um, And I also found a spelling test tucked inside. So I must have used it as a bookmark also. That's adorable. Um, I know. But listener Megan wrote to us and and made me laugh very much. Um, This book changed her life. I'm listening. Um, She says, I was the new kid at school when Titanic crazy exploded. We get it. 
she was the first one of her sort of cohort to have read this book. Um, and she earned all these points through a contest at their school and she was able to get the book. She read it before everyone else. And she says, this could be a false memory. It's not Megan. We believe you. But I remember some girls were super jealous of me because she had the book first and it made her a cool new kid. I was like, it's not false. Like, I believe you. I believe that happened. Yes. I affirm you. I had to share. Um, we also heard a flex from um, one of our favorite question askers, um, dot, 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 who told us that she was the model. For- Excuse me? Yes, she was the model for the second iteration of these books. So we will post a picture. Um, it was her first paycheck, and she was the inspiration for the reboot. So we read the original. What? But they rebooted these with new art, and she was the model. So more like lifelike girls versus a portrait. Honestly, I can't imagine a finer job as like a child professional person than being no. the portrait of a dear America. No. My God. I'm, like, honestly, I want it for me now. Yeah, I want that for you too. I'll write to Scholastic. I'll see what I can do. I mean, I have no power, so this probably won't go anywhere, but... I want that for you. Oh my God, that's amazing. I would love to know how much she was paid. That's an indelicate question I won't ask, (laughs) but I'm sure it wasn't enough. And oh my God, that's crazy. Like class and money anxiety is like, honestly, the real plot of this book and probably the true plot of what went on with the Titanic, where this girl like gets a chance. This, This is probably the thing that bothered me about this book. This girl gets a chance to eat with the rich people. Yeah. And she can't enjoy it. And I, I understand that we have been in academic and other sort of learning situations, shall we say, surrounded by people with wealth and, and you are from different worlds. There are ways in which like your upbringing was so different. It can be kind of challenging. At the same time, part of her issue is she hates hearing Americans gossip about each other. And I'm like, Margaret, we can't be friends. No, like... Do you have a, do you have like a page where this goes on? Um, I have a lot of pages. Oh boy. I also didn't like, so let me just get into the plot briefly, even though we're not going to get to like a granular (laughs) level with this. She's living, so her parents pass away, her mother from illness, her dad from a shipyard accident as a worker. Her brother leaves her at an orphanage, a Catholic convent orphanage, goes to America She's that been there five years from nowhere. We're never explained. She gets the opportunity to be a companion. We'll talk about that job to a rich American <laughs> who's traveling home because alone, because her daughter just had her first grandchild and her husband needs to stay in London for business. So from the jump, there's an obsession with food, which I find like relatable, but also like <laughs> it's kind of strange that the thing that she's most obsessed with is the food. And there's, like, these accounts of these epic meals that get served on the Titanic, like, multiple courses and at the hotel before they leave. And she's just, like, absolutely floored that rich people get this much food at one meal. And also, there's, I think, an implication that the women aren't really eating it because the petticoats are so tight. But she's like, I'm going for it, which, like, relatable content. I get it. It is kind of bizarre, though, that the author kind of wants her to be curious about the rich people's world, but she she's not really wanting to emulate them in any way. It's like she holds herself apart in a way that is an interesting reaction to being around people who are so different from you. Like she has no interest in really passing at all. No. And the one moment where you do see her trying to pass 
is when she's on the deck walking and a man says like you can't be on this deck it's for first class passengers only and you're just a companion and he she thinks he's drunk and she's like oh like initially she's like how dare you I belong here and then feels weird about that response so the whole time there's like this weird performance of like her as an other amongst both rich people people who are other because they're rich they're older than she is she's like 13 Mm -hmm. 14 and also they're american and her anti-american stance is not here for it i'm not prepared for that but i get it so she's shocked that rich people exercise because working class people don't need in her world to exercise because their life is exercise um so she's also she's very critical of the rich people like in the film titanic who visit the below stairs she says they're quote slumming and she's not going to do that herself that's also a way for the author to not have to explain too much of what's going down there because she refuses to visit um which i get like you have to have so anyway i'll say two things talking about food constantly that's also just like cruise culture. Like if you've been on a cruise, you eat constantly, you talk about food constantly. It's sort of like quarantine. You are eating all the time. As you know, I've never been on a cruise, hope to never be on a cruise. I, this is a fundamental dividing This is point. perhaps our biggest difference as friends. Yeah. Like, I remember when you went on your honeymoon and we both were, like, in panic mode because I was like, what if you're going on a cruise and I honestly have no idea what that means about, like, cell phones and whatever, but I was like, am I just never going to hear from you? (laughs) Back then, I mean, that was six years ago, you actually couldn't. Like, my cell phone didn't work over there. It was in Europe. Um, I sound like Mrs. Carstairs, who she's the (laughs) companion to, but... um... I'm just your Irish friend, low-class friend. So part of it, too, was, like, I think... She's, like, spunky, right? Like, in the Hermione way where she's, like, not about, like, what these, like, rich older people are talking about. But, like, as an adult slash, like, crone personality myself, I'm, like, I do want to hear the gossip about the summer season. I do want to hear them talk about the sorbet. Like, even if to make fun of it, like, page um, 99, she says, in the meantime, I return to my haddock, constant obsession with food. The conversation shifted once again to the many joys of the summer season of Newport. Such are the social interactions I have been experiencing. I must be a terrible disappointment. Mrs. Carstairs and I find little common conversational ground. And then they kind of poke at her. They're like, wow, you eat a lot, which I think is also like a classist comment of like, she doesn't know to not actually eat everything. And one line I did love is she says, I embrace culinary excess, sir. Like, she's a lot. She is a whole (laughs) lot. Like, oh, my God. And also one of the American ladies is like, oh, like, Whitechapel. That that sounds like a beautiful part of London. And she was like, yeah, like, Jack the Ripper thought. She was like, I wanted to say, like, yeah, Jack the Ripper thought so, too. But I didn't. And it's like, okay, we got it. But from a professional standpoint, just thinking about the context that she's in, this woman is an orphan. We truly have no idea where her brother is or what he's getting up to. Like, he could have said, I went to America... You know, I'm doing X, Y, Z, but then he's kind of, like, pieced out and is somewhere else. Like, we don't really know what she's going to find on arrival. And she does not have employment beyond when they dock. So no. if it were me and I was around these old people who had a ton of money, I would have been like, listen, I'm going to be the companion of your dreams. <laughs> I know. Like, I know. you will never find another companion who is as personable as me who loves to talk about gossip about people I've never met before. 
Um, I will gladly be an active listener through conversations I don't understand. I will never talk about, like, I will be interested in your conversations about exercise. I'll learn to play bridge, which she doesn't know how to do. She learns to play hearts. I was proud of her for yeah. that. But no, it's, like, it's like, this is an audition. Like, she doesn't get it. It's like, this is an audition, girl. I know. Like, dress for the job you want. They've given you the They've free given you, wardrobe. Yes. And she's like, I wore my brown sweater on the dock, on the deck with my fancy dress because I was cold. And it's like, girl, she bought you two coats. <laughs> here's, here's my thing. Why? If being a companion was good enough for Louisa May Alcott, it is good enough for you. Good enough for you, ma'am. And she's like, I got fancy new black boots, but my it was a little slippery when I was walking on them, so I put on my old boots. And I'm like, girl, everybody knows when you buy new boots like that or shoes and you slip, you go outside and you scuff up the soles a little bit. It's really not that deep. Like, I'm sure there was something in the orphanage that you could use to translate to figure that out. Like, oh my God. I'm going to say this also. Mr. Carstairs is a hundred percent having an affair. Oh yeah, he like doesn't <laughs> like, even have. I bet I guarantee you he doesn't even have a job. No, he's like no. I have business here in London. It's like I'm sure you do, Mr. Carstairs. <laughs> All I could think of was um, Arrested Development. How they're obsessed with the stairs that lead up to the airplane, <laughs> the portable stairs. Um, no, yeah. Mr. Carstairs is having an affair. Like you're saying, too, we have no idea what her brother is getting up to. None. And I'll say, like, even after we meet him, I'm like, I see you. Me, too. Because also, it's like, <laughs> he was not there when she landed. I'm like, sir, the sinking of the Titanic was one of the most widely reported news stories <laughs> in American history. And at first, yes, it was reported that everyone survived. Then the truth comes out. We have passenger lists in the newspaper every single day. She gets right. off the ship and she's like, someone's like, hey, were you on the Titanic? She's like, ah, no, like, please leave me alone. Wanders over to a park bench and falls asleep. Her pocket's full of cash from Mrs. Carstairs. I was like, oh my God, you truly learned nothing on this journey. <laughs> and her brother wakes her up and is like, found you. And I'm like, I'm sorry, this isn't heartwarming. Where the hell were you when we docked? <laughs> like, this woman has been through it. She almost died. And what are you going to say? Like, oh, sorry, I missed the train I meant to catch. Like, had to catch a later train. Figure it out. Like, where the hell were you? <laughs> I'm angry. Like, I don't even like her. And I'm like, guess what? She deserved better today. You kind of have one job. Like, you had one lane. I'm sorry. You've already abandoned her at an orphanage and, like, basically yeah. bought her toffees to make her feel better about the situation and yourself. Not saying your life was easy, but I'm just saying. So, when we leave Margaret, right, like, we get a little epilogue because he basically says, like, do you want to talk about it? And she's like, no, I do not. And the repression begins. He's like, of course. that's fine. But we'll get honestly, that flew right by me because growing up in an Irish home, <laughs> when you have a trauma happen and someone's like do you want it? And they're like, I'm, I will push that down and lock the door and carry it with me to the grave. Again, just to note, that's not a healthy response. And I've since like learned better ways of being, but I'm just saying like that did track for me. So like truly how, like how of a culture is this? He says, are you ready to talk about it? She won't verbalize it. She shakes her head. He says, okay. And gives her carbs. (gasps) Yep. That tracks. And then, she finally speaks like she really hasn't spoken to him and she says would you mind terribly if we got a cat and he's like yep he's like great we, we had jumped- a really beautiful conversation <laughs> 
we we jump to the epilogue and we learn that she goes to Wellesley, which was really cool. Yep. Here's what was like interesting to me because her relationship with Sister Catherine, yep. who's sort of like her friend and confidant in the orphanage. Her cursed alley, you might say. A hundred percent. Here's the thing that I actually did love because it's very Anglo. Sister Catherine is like, we don't do favorites. Like this is a convent. We don't do favorites. Sidebar, constantly handing her candy, gives her extra money for the journey, make sure she looks good. They stay in touch the rest of her life. That actually spoke to me so hard as like a very specific kind of like Anglo fallacy of like, we don't do favoritism. We don't have favorites. Like this doesn't exist. And then like the blatant explosive favoritism that she experiences. Like the other kids are like starving, like only getting mush. And they're like, Margaret, you get it all. My grandmother would give like lectures totally unsolicited on equality. And she's like, I love absolutely every one of you the same. My grandmother had seven grandchildren. I was named after her. So like put that together. She was like, I love absolutely all of you the same. My cousin in front of me hands her a drawing that he made at school. And he's like, here, Nani, I made this. She's like, wow, this is really beautiful. Throws it in the trash. Okay. (laughs) Next day, I draw something not that great. But I was like, here, I like wasn't paying attention in religion class and drew this for you. Two days later, it's framed on her wall. She's like, Mary made this for me. This is beautiful. Like, not great. Also, like, quick aside about, like, traumatic conversations. I had a school project once about the Great Depression, and you had to interview a relative. So I go to my grandmother. I'm like, Nani, like, you were born in 1925. Like, your thoughts on the Great Depression? She was like, my father heard the news about the stock market crash, and he was a streetcar operator, and he dropped dead. I was three years old. I'm like, okay. She's like, my first memory of being alive is sitting up all night with his body in our house for his wake. I'm like, wow, that must have been really traumatic. And she's like, it wasn't. She's like, anyway, get me the Cheez-Its. End of conversation. She was schooled by this family. Yeah, like she could have fit right in. But I also think she would have been a better companion because she would have been hustling. Like companionship as a profession is not one that we talk about much anymore, although it most certainly exists because if you watch any reality show, every star has like (laughs) a pay to play friend. Yes. Food (laughs) God. Yeah. All of them. Like they all have like pay to play friends, which is sad, but I guess has a historical antecedent, which I never really thought about. So I think you think about it in the way of like, you know, women in the 19th century who criticized the institution of heterosexual marriage and said, you know, it's all prostitution. It's just how and what you're paying for. Um, Like in a similar way, I think when you're that wealthy, it's like, you know that people are trying to get access. So you sort of respect the naked ambition of the one person who doesn't lie to your face about why they're your friend. I think that's very true. I think that's entirely true. And I think it's interesting, like, of course, John Jacob Astor died on the Titanic. And yeah, just to like take us there. And the Astors are a really interesting story about, like, obviously all of these codes, like these social codes among the very wealthy. And I'm sure that the women in the Astor family also participated in this culture of having companions because... They were so known for their wealth that, like, they must have known transparently everyone coming at them is motivated by one thing. Yeah. I I also think, and I, I don't say this at all to, like, build empathy for no reason, but when I worked in wealthy people's houses, 
there was a profound loneliness that a lot of these people experienced because they could never just be in the world, as you're saying. You know, they didn't go grocery shopping. And again, this is because of their privilege. Um, a lot of people who felt ambitious in the late 19th century and had money, access, and privilege and became millionaires had these profoundly lonely and sad lives because it was never enough. Like, if mm. you have to build a million square foot house, there's something inside of you that's not fulfilled, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's not really about that. And so few people were genuine to them, so few people. And kind of the sad thing is, like, they would say and mean it, like, this butler is my best friend. And Oof. it's one side, it's one sided. And, yeah. and that's kind of the sad thing. Like, they live with this profound loneliness. And the obvious argument to that is, like, okay, redistribute your wealth. They, their ambition has brought them to a place where they're in a trap of their own making and they can't get out. Like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why I've never wanted to be a celebrity, which I don't have to worry about it because I'm not. But, like, <laughs> I would never want to have that kind of surveillance all the time. I would never want to have that kind of, like, absolute bald greed, like, yeah. motivating everyone's interaction with me for access, for privilege, for connections, for whatever. Yeah, it's just not, it's not anything I would ever want. But I do think it's interesting to think about why then is it that even as a child, I was so drawn to the rich people in the Titanic. Yep. And why are people so drawn to the Titanic itself? And maybe this is a good time for me to introduce a little research I did, Allison. I sent you some files yesterday. You've been on I the path with me. Okay, listen, so what I intended to do was find videos of survivors of the Titanic explaining their experiences, and that is what I found. However, I also found a documentary that is truly one of the wildest things I've ever seen. We will post the link to this. I started rolling this yesterday. It opens with a seance. Yep. It opens with a seance of one of the oldest living survivors. This was filmed in the 1970s, trying to contact her father who died in the Titanic just to see how he was. And it's like, first of all, the material culture of this scene is a shock. Yeah. It's like a card table. Like, and you, what you've learned is like they zoom out. She is at a Titanic historical society meeting. And I didn't know, Allison, did, I don't know if you did either that, did you know that there was a Titanic Historical Society? No, but I used to live about two miles from an organization. It was an acronym and it was called SHIP. And it was like a historical, like a pretty major historical gathering of people who just did ship history. Never, ever called us a boat. Absolutely never called a boat. Please have some respect. This is a ship. That's Unless it's a say. submarine and then it's a boat. Wow. I didn't know that piece. So thank you for that. I didn't know that. I worked one summer at a seaport, and that's, like, day one stuff. Really? Oh, no, now yep. I feel like an idiot. I feel no, like no, 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 like, what's, I mean, like, I do feel like maritime culture, like, speaks slightly less to you, and I'm not sure why, but, like, you don't partake in, like, cruise culture. I think the difference is I would really love, I have, I went on a spree one summer, I don't know why, like, thinking back on this time in my life where I read a lot of true accounts of whaling voyages yep. but i refuse to engage moby dick do not write to me about this i have read it multiple times it's a no-go for me as i've said i think before i got a fudgy the whale cake the last day i had to read it in high school and like that was a gift in my life i enjoyed that yep. 
But I love reading the true accounts. I think it's a weird subculture in American history, or not weird, but sort of like, it's this alternative space where a lot of historians have done work on this, where there's like alternative ideas about sexuality that are kind of functioning in plain sight outside of what would be like kosher on the mainland in so-called like regular society. So there, it is kind of like a third space or like a second space. And I'm interested in that. I love the shipwreck accounts of like the whaling things. I did that for one summer and then got off of it. I don't want to go on a cruise now. Like I don't want to read about cruise ships now. I don't want to talk about that. Like it's, it's a no-go situation. I don't know why. Maybe in a past life I was harmed on a carnival cruise I don't, I don't know, but that's where I'm at with that. So you're right. Like there's something about it. I'm from Connecticut. I went to Mystic Seaport many times. Love the seaport. That's my oeuvre, the seaport. I think like a difference between us is for me, a cruise ship is an opportunity to like forcibly turn an off switch, right? Like I think this is kind of a Virgo thing in, in my sense where it's like, there are just things that you cannot do on a cruise ship because it is not physically possible. And so it gives you a space to like the same way other people go to retreats. I don't want to be in that kind of space, but like for me, a cruise ship or like even just like being on a ferry, it's like certain things are not possible in this space. And I am personally, or like I'm going out of my way deliberately to put myself in a space where I don't have access to everything in my life so I can concentrate and clear my head like 48 hours without cell phone access is like what it takes for me to turn it off okay see yes this is a key difference between us because mm-hmm. I don't need that to me you no, a cruise you ship is a panic room because <laughs> I know <laughs> you are in an enclosed space with an entire group of strangers who might be sociopaths we don't know that and you yeah. can only do prescribed activities. And maybe I want to do something else. Like, I need an escape route at all times or I can't do it. I just can't handle that. And I can, in some ways, be like, I am not touching my phone today. Yeah. And that's a, that's fine. But it's a panic room. It will never happen. I know you have a dream of us going on a cruise together. It's not. It's probably not going to come true unless I go on some kind of, like, psychotropic drug or something like that. Like when Margaret gets on the ship and it's like at this hour, this happens at this hour, this happens like snacks are at this spot. When you go on a cruise with me, you get a daily itinerary into your room and you also have the week at a glance or like I've done 10 days. So I've, I've oh really God. done it. Oh my God. You're going to get my annotations on the daily and weekly itineraries of exactly what's going to go on at what time. And like I went on one four or five months ago with my mother and sister. And they were like, why do you go to all the presentations? Like they're the same on every ship. And it's like, because I need it. Like I go to the presentation on like the Tanzanite. Like if you've been on a cruise, you know, it's like all exactly the same. I go to the lecture. I join the book club. Like it's my dream. You would hate, you would hate. My eyes are bugging out of my head right now. You have no idea. I would absolutely hate that. I need unstructured time where I can't function. Like if somebody said to me like, congrats, your vacation is like, we're going to schedule your time as much or more as like a work day. I would openly rebel and and like try to take it down from within. But you can have unstructured time between like two and four. No. But then you have dinner. I don't. So. Nope. Nope. I don't think so. I mean, listen, it's just what I'm hearing is like, 
you and I might have a beautiful time together some afternoon watching some episodes of Love Boat <laughs> yeah. because, you know, we'd be solving some crimes maybe. Like we're falling, watching people fall in love. Like we're on a cruise ship, metaphorically speaking. I'm in the comfort of my own home and I can leave at any time. Yeah. It's just not for you and I, I do get it. You're going to keep trying to convince me and I know that that's happening and I'm, yeah. I've accepted that. That's okay. I respect you. But... If I can pivot back for a second to the Titanic Historical yes. Society. Okay, we're going to post a link to this, but it's titanichistoricalsociety.org. Stop. That's what it is. And it, you need to click on the tab that says THS Founder. Now, as someone who has studied many maniacal organizations, be it Scientology, be it the United States, like whatever... This page is wild. It takes you on a biography of the founder whose name is Edward Kamuda, who hails from Springfield, Massachusetts. Now, important points. Edward has no connection to the Titanic. (laughs) He's not related to a survivor. He's not related to a victim. He didn't know anyone who helped build it. He's not, you know, he has absolutely no connection. He saw in his grandfather's movie theater, the 1953 movie, titanic starring clifton webb and barbara stanwyck and that was it then he was like this is going to be the obsession of a lifetime he read a book called walter um, a night to remember by walter lord in 19 which came out in 1955 it's often written about or referenced in titanic stuff because it's one of the first books or it's considered like a very well thought of book about the titanic okay so this man reads a book watches a movie and then cut to this defines the rest of his life this is a wild flex. He starts to place ads in newspapers and maritime magazines looking for survivors of the Titanic who would want to speak to him. I love that. Okay, so at this point, in 1963 now, he gets information that someone in the Titanic's kitchen personnel passes away. He sees the obituary in the New York Times. The person's name was Walter Belford, who lived in an apartment in New York. He contacts the landlady of Walter Belford and is like, did this guy leave anything behind about the Titanic? (laughs) And the lady was like, yeah, you had some Titanic junk. I threw it away. Like, who cares? And he's like, ah! And then that is what (laughs) motivates him. In 1963, we get like, this narrative is so serious. The tone, it's like absolutely bonkers. On July 7th, 1963, five young men met in Kamuda's home and formed the Titanic Enthusiasts of America. So after this point, he creates this organization that essentially puts out a magazine every year and he puts his personal money. I don't think he's a rich person. He puts his personal money into printing this magazine. I can't tell you how few people cared about this. So in 19, just to like move this along, in 19... (laughs) Allison, it's like, I'm in so deep on this. I'm going to say something and you're not going to like it. What? You're jealous. Of him? (laughs) You are jealous of Ed Kamura? (laughs) He has Mrs. Astor's life jacket and you're jealous. Oh my God. I am. Okay. Yes. I am jealous of that. (laughs) Okay. I live an hour from this museum. I'm going. When this all ends... And you're not going to take me? You no, can't you. go there without me. It's we can packed. probably triangulate. I don't want to reveal where we live, but he has like first class dining chairs. This guy has How? major coin. Okay, but I don't, I think what he did was he kind of like befriended and got donations. Let me throw this at you. This man made himself the companion 
to Titanic survivors and was a better companion than Margaret Ann Brady. Wow. Yeah, that's, yeah. Dropping that's a mic. What he did, he put <laughs> in the 1970s, this guy puts out the magazines. He has a convention meeting. The first one was in Connecticut. No big deal. 1973. <laughs> Within a year, there were a thousand members of this organization. I want to read my favorite paragraph of this and then I will leave this alone. Okay. <laughs> He basically keeps trying to drum up survivors. And he's like, I found one, got a new one. And he's writing them letters. And then he publishes their letters in his magazine, which like with or without there. And one of the survivors writes to him and is like, who the heck would make a, a society about the history of, the of like a tragedy? That's weird. And she's on the Titanic saying this to him. She was like, I was there. Like, why are you obsessed with this? And he's like, you don't get it. Moving on. Next issue. <laughs> So then he's like, he, they create this accounting where he's like, listen, I've gotten so many great pieces from my friends who are on the Titanic. Hold on. Okay, here it is. So um, he sends one of the survivors out to do basically a PowerPoint slideshow. Like I'm imagining Don Draper doing the carousel presentation on the Titanic to drum up membership. Okay. Quote. Edward Kamuda continued corresponding with his large circle of survivor friends, and some were kind enough to donate personal artifacts they saved. Lookout Fred Fleet sent his sketch of the iceberg and photos of some of his mates. First-class saloon steward Frederick Dent Ray sent a square of carpet from the ship and his razor, quote, so I might have a shave in the morning, quote. Selena Rogers Cook donated clothing items she wore on board, including a tooth that was extracted. <laughs> no. Yes. That's vile. This man is like, I would love your tooth. Thank you. <laughs> and the documentary that we will share a link to is of a convention he held in the 70s where there's like five very elderly survivors invited. And it's it's quite a show. Like you see mostly men. They're alone wearing handmade t-shirts that say, never forget the Titanic. As if we could. Allison's like crying. <laughs> and they're like looking directly into camera and they're like, we will never forget. And like each one of them individually is like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know why I'm here. Like as a child, I don't know. There was like something about the Titanic. It just touched me. I don't know. So when you were sending me these survivor videos to watch, like you were having your own like, you know, THS moments. Yes. So I was watching the videos. Um, the thing that kept coming up, like, in addition to other Titanic content, was, like, the band underneath on my YouTube was Holocaust Survivor videos. And, Ooh. like, I think you bringing this up in this way is is really helpful and interesting because there's such a huge gap between and, – and tragedy comparisons are not useful, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they, they don't really get us anywhere. It's not a contest. But to say, like, an event that was globally catastrophic and – a deliberate genocide, right, of entire groups of people. The way that the Titanic has been remembered so excessively proportionate to the tragedy, I think the fact that, like, there's so much documentation, so much on the internet, and the fact that, like, YouTube was replicating that by saying, like, oh, you're interested in hearing from these survivors, hear from these other survivors, when the magnitude of what they went through is so different. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you were making me think like, you know, the culture that we have around monuments and memorials is like, that's its own podcast. That's so huge. But the resistance in this country to remember in a sober and meaningful way um, and with some hope, you would think the histories of slavery and resistance to slavery, like 
the extent to which Americans like do not want to memorialize resistance or do not want to acknowledge slavery. I was thinking like there isn't anything on the mall or in DC that gets at that history. 1930s is when we get a Titanic memorial. They're like, never forget. Never we won't forget. Wait. Please don't There's forget. There's a depression. Um, Gertrude Vanderbilt actually does it. And it's a beautiful, beautiful piece. Um, we used to talk about it where I work. Alfred Gwynn Vanderbilt dies on the Lusitania after skipping out on the Titanic. So, wow, luck running out. Talk about that. But um, the fact that like so soon rich people were like, we can never forget 20 years out. We have to have this memorial. It's beautiful. Look it up. Um, And that resistance, right? Like over 100 years later to even acknowledge that slavery happened. Like as she's making that, people are sitting down with survivors of slavery for WPA narratives and still alive to tell their story. Cut to this guy being like, got the carpet. <laughs> got the tooth. Thank you. Like, like, yeah. The scale, you know, like the scale of tragedy that we're willing to grapple with. I think that's human. I think it's entirely. And racist. <laughs> Which is human. Um, yes. A problem of humanity. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that in some ways, like we've been talking about tourism playfully, about cruise tourism, and, you know, even thinking about the ways that um, as a companion, Margaret Ann as a character was completely um, kind of awed by the stationary bikes in the gym, and even just this idea of vacation, which is sort of like a newer idea that as work and the workday gets more highly structured, recreation gets more structured, and you have the invention of Club Med and other places. But also like atrocity tourism being a thing and also like in whether you're going to a physical place that's associated with a tragedy with which you feel some connection or you have a curiosity about. But thinking about the ways that the Internet is a site of tourism and um, remembrance and commemoration like flattens meaning really meaningful differences between these events and circumstances. Like, I can't tell you how odd I am by the absolute granular level of minutiae interest in the Titanic that I have seen online. Like, there's a site called, um, I think it's like Titanic Encyclopedia or something like that, that you can search literally any piece of the Titanic. And people are like, obviously, someone says, can you tell me where this stairwell was behind, you know, the second deck of this or that near the second class library? And someone's like, obviously, it's not this stairwell because like this or that. And it's like... People getting into these massive fights at the same exact time that we were living in a country where more and more people are easily convinced that the Holocaust never happened. Uh And that's absolutely stunning to me because it's like, what do we choose to remember and why? And I know I'm making fun or making light of the Titanic Historical Society, but I think the fact that this guy devoted his entire life to this and convinced so many people to join him in it, and the page ends with James Cameron introducing this man on the set of the titanic and saying we're all here because of this guy Mm -hmm. and thinking about that trajectory of like white guys like really celebrating the titanic becoming obsessed with it not just them obviously we have our own histories with it so many people do why is it that we seek out and recreate you know when dear america was reissued in 2010 this was one of the first ones reissued why does the Titanic persist in our imagination as an acceptable source of commemoration and like, like not tragedy porn, but something akin to it? 
when we do not have the same sustained focus or interest, as you say, whether online or in person or in school, on the Holocaust, on the history of slavery. And I think it's because we're still dealing with the issues that drove all of those events, and they're unresolved, and people don't want to think about their own, you know, culpability in those ideas, you know, that we could live in a world that would allow people to be discriminated against because of religion or race in the ways that we're complicit in that, in those systems. People don't want to sit with that. It's a messier story. Titanic, it's like, here's a ship that never should have, that was called unsinkable. It sank. Period. Well, people have pointed out that some of the fatality rates in New York City have been higher per day than Gettysburg. Mm -hmm. And you can know that and also know that interest in Gettysburg is not going away. Right. For, for, you know, because it's not, it's not actually about the suffering. It's about a topic that you can take on and kind of make your own and like fully process at this granular level, like you're saying. I also think there's like so many stories that we don't talk about and we don't know because when these new kinds of series come out and they're pathbreaking in certain ways, right? Like configuring young women as important historical actors, they also still tend to do a lot of the same things. Like the first 10 or so stories of Dear America are like identical to American Girl. Yep. And they're like greatest hits. You have a pilgrim, you have a girl in the Revolutionary War, you have Civil War, you have an enslaved person, a girl on the prairie, mill girl, another story of an enslaved person like those are the two stories of Mm african-americans you have a story of a jewish immigrant coming to ellis island which was like very hot for a moment and then the alamo question mark that was a real question mark for me yeah i spotted that and it was like well (laughs) we'll go there someday um i have been to the alamo and it's um interesting and then a story of a woman who's held captive by indigenous people (sighs) okay um, but it is interesting to think about the two series in conversation with each other because I think you're right that there's so much similarity there yeah. of what kinds of narratives they map women on, young girls onto as the central character. But also, like, I guess I had expectations that we were going to get more of her interior life because this is all formulated around a diary. Right. And I guess we got it, but it didn't feel like as deep as I remember. It's, well... It's accurate in the sense that it's performative because it's given to her by an adult. Mm. And it's the only way that she, at the end of the book, it's the only way that she lets other people access her Titanic story because she notably will never talk about it out loud the rest of her life. But the epilogue says she gave the diary to her brother for safekeeping. Yeah, and I think that's an important piece too about how the Titanic gets remembered because of course, like, it's as precarious as this man like happening to get interested collecting mm-hmm. items that we have these museums and so on but also the survivors who felt comfortable enough in light of like this was not to underplay the titanic such a traumatic event that few of us can even wrap our heads around and something that was so chilling to me about listening to the survivors was they were saying like the most traumatic moment was not when the ship was going down or you know getting into lifeboats and this and that but the absolute quiet after Mm. everyone stopped screaming so like when you knew that everyone in the water had passed yeah like the like absolute trauma of that so like living through that you can totally understand margaret ann after she gets off the ship then she immediately denies she was on it and doesn't want to share that except in a way that she can live with 
But so many, um, you know, historical organizations like searching through their collections before today have items from survivors. And they all say like, you know, this person left us with these few mementos, which they never were willing to speak about during their life. Like they didn't want to talk about it. So you have to wonder about like the kinds of histories we have are entirely shaped by those who are willing to share them. And particularly the male survivors, like Virginia Historical Society has some mementos from a very rare like male survivor. Mm. And it's because he jumped into the water when a lifeboat was being lowered down. And he thought, I think he thought he would die and someone pulled him into a ship or into a lifeboat. He passed out and someone pulled him into a lifeboat when he woke up, you know, he was in a lifeboat and lived. But he, there was so much shame around male survivors of the Titanic that he could never speak about it. When actually this is a completely anomalous event in human history, like this women and children um, paradigm, like women and children first, women and children must survive. There are tons of studies which show that the Titanic is a complete anomaly. Like that is not who survives usually. Mm -hmm. So this is like a product of a very particular like moment of patriarchy where it's like we value women and children in this way. They must survive, but it's actually... I, I think people misunderstand when people say toxic masculinity, but actually like how sad that men who feel like they were both fully responsible for making this happen and fully responsible for letting it fail are like, I literally don't deserve to live because I made a mistake. Yes. Like that, that's such a good point. Yeah. That speaks to suicide culture. Like I literally don't deserve to live because I made a mistake yes. versus um, I think the way that it's gendered, people are socialized differently to own up to mistakes, to articulate that they've made a mistake. Um, there is a tweet going around and I keep thinking about it. I say it all the time, does that make sense? I say it all the time. And there's one very viral tweet, which is saying like, there are conventions of gendered speak that are useful. Like it's a way of saying to the person with whom you're in dialogue, am I making sense to you? And there's been a also very popular response tweet, which is like, women often have to talk this way so they're not perceived as aggressive and abrasive and all sorts of other things. It's like, I see both sides. It's like part of why people talk about toxicity is like, no, it's bad for everybody. Yeah, (laughs) Not a complaint. It's like, it's bad for everybody. And the flip side being like, I say, does that make sense? Because I care that I'm being understood and I care that I'm communicating effectively. I don't just want to hear myself talk. Right. That, that's right. like kind of, a, that's like, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, but it's an important point. I mean, I think how sad is you're saying that men would think like, okay, I made a mistake. And it's like really like everything everyone says about the Titanic is everything that could have gone wrong did. And yeah. there was nothing that really could have prevented. Although the best part of the documentary that we saw is that they radioed over to the Carpathia and were like, or no, the Carpathia radios to them and says, hey, just so you know, there's a ton of ice that you're going to hit at these like longitude latitude points. And the person like radios back and is like, shut up. But like hearing the British narrator of this documentary <laughs> reading these, this account is insane. This this clip changed me today. Like you sent this to me and you were like, urgent, interrupt your lunch. Yes. Check this out. And I did. And it really gave me like <laughs> such a, a tickle because the Titanic is like the ultimate, not the ultimate, but it is one of the best stories of hubris. Yes. And always underneath hubris, um, if you think of books like Hannah Rosen's The End of Men, um, 
which I read one night and my husband was like, "Uh oh, um, I was like, you're <laughs> fine. Um, but like underneath all of this is this thing of like insecurity that can't be verbalized in a way that's productive. Like yes. if you think of Enron, if you think of the Titanic, like if people had been empowered to say like, you know, I'm not really sure if there were other social conventions in place, it's like people might've lived. And then that feeling of like, I can't put myself into a boat because I have created a scenario. And then that kind of martyrdom that they end up being forced into a lot of them. I also was very fascinated. I think there's such a mythos around like the music playing as the ship goes down Mm -hmm. and the survivors saying that that didn't happen. I've never heard that. That That was new to me, that that's a myth. Oh, really? Yeah. So I was watching other clips and a lot of survivors were saying like that didn't happen. I also think it speaks to the way that we literally process sound differently in situations of trauma. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think in that way, like the movie is actually I've never been a fan of the movie. I'll just say that. It's, you know, nothing in particular. I find the draw me like your French girl scene offensive as like a human being, you know, operating in the world. But, um, you know, I do acknowledge that it's something that was I remember how hugely popular it was. I remember seeing like people going multiple times to see it. Um, But I think something that is beyond just like, oh, it's not really for me thing is that it does replicate these kind of toxic masculinity culture that was true of the actual event like the scenes where the captain is like i'm sacrificing myself because obviously like i caused this somehow and all of this kind of stuff or like the band playing until the very end obviously it heightens the drama but i think these presentations of martyrdom in the face of tragedy are not helpful and the scenes of like us all knowing who's gonna die ahead of time and seeing like um, the head of Macy's, like, go with his wife and, mm. like, stay together. There's just something about that. Like, I don't actually find entertainment value or fulfillment in watching historical tragedy play out and be, like, absolutely manipulated emotionally while you're watching it. It just doesn't work for me. And I think having our conversation is making me think, like, beyond not really working for me on a taste level, it's regrettable that the presentations of femininity and masculinity that we get are also not helpful he could have fit is the thing <sighs> was gonna get to that it's no. insane that we are forced to accept that ending when it's so clear he could have fit like yeah. it's obvious he could have fit <laughs> can we also get an edit where there's an amazing like there's an internet thread that says like his name is actually Jacqueline and that he's a woman and actually like if you rewatch the movie acknowledging that he's a woman oh. passing it's actually makes more sense <laughs> i'm fine with that i'm fine with that I like i'm probably am. not going to rewatch to figure this out but someone could and get back to me because i am interested yeah now of your many many interests you have been peer pressuring me into reading something for quite some time and i am going to acquiesce in the month of may <laughs> listen Listen, you act like I'm forcing you to do this at like, I know. gunpoint or that this is going to be unpleasant for you. This book is so entertaining in these times, Allison. I know. I have such respect for this person now, which I did not before. And, you know, all I can say is in May, I'm so excited. Our Patreon episode 
We're going back to, we're doing another book club episode. You have your marching orders right now. Please obtain a copy of Jessica Simpson's open book. We're going there. We're going to talk about the history of celebrityhood in the early 2000s, which is in what many ways this book is about. And if you read this book and emerge with a positive view of John Mayer, just know that's not the feedback we're going to get on the <laughs> show, or at least I'm not prepared to do that. No. I've never fully understood that napalm quote, but maybe I will after this Oh, book. my God. Speaking of toxic masculinity, yeah. Allison, reading his the way he behaved towards her and the ways that she, in a kind of reflective way, as someone who's been through therapy and so on, like the ways that she was in relationship with him and that he was manipulating her in a really mm-hmm. unhealthy, toxic way... I have a lot of empathy for her and what she was dealing with there. And also, like, I mean, we will get into this, but I think her parenting limited her exposure to thinking about herself as a person who could be in relationship romantically, sexually with anybody. So then, like, that leads to the Nick Lachey of it all and then the fallout (laughs) from that. I have so many feelings about this book, but it truly is a really interesting history of what it must have been like to be part of celebrity culture in the 2000s. It's just, it's this funny thing where, like, you have talked about this book as if it's, like, a reread of Rousseau or, like, you've just discovered Dostoevsky. Like, the depth at which you talk about this I do book. not accept any false barriers between higher low I know, culture. I, I bring the same fire to it all. And I, know, I will think like- with everything. Everything can be something to think with, and this book is no different. I I have texted you approximately 500 times about this book. (laughs) I was probably texting you in real time as I was reading it. I read it in like a day and a half. And I was like, Allison, like so many truths in this book. Like, It is also our fundamental divide that you can get me to cave on pretty much any (laughs) pop culture product, but you will never watch Fringe. (laughs) like you just won't and it's fine here's it's clearly not fine because (laughs) i hear about this all the time but i will say i have a pile of in our bedroom books and things that people have let me and i keep them together so i won't lose them and my or like read them but the fringe dvd is at the top of the pile every morning as i get dressed i look at it there's a photo of me with my grandmother and it's right behind that and i'm always like oh like fluffy love you miss you girl and then i'm like like i'm a horrible friend no speaking about commemoration culture it's like a monument i've made for myself where i'm like i'm inadequate i I need to pull it together i don't like sci-fi someone also shout out to the listener who shamed me on instagram and was like if you're a real winona fan why aren't you watching uh whatever that show is called and i was like i thought it was scary stranger things yeah i think it is not scary but i also know that you have like very like set boundaries around like certain kinds of scary or content and I respect them. Thank you, Allison. Like on any given day, it's like I'm watching a murder show of some kind. You could probably watch a murder in real time and you'd be like, well, I'm prepared to solve it. Or like maybe you did it, hard to say. Whereas like I can't watch a murder show unless it's Law and Order or it's Jessica Fletcher in a very camp denim on denim outfit being ridiculous. Although I'm also watching Miss um, Fisher's <laughs> Mer- Mysteries, which is set in the 1920s yes. in Australia. And I'm very much enjoying that. It's not filling a murder she wrote hole, shaped hole in my life, but. That's a fan favorite, actually. Yeah, I'm very into that. I'm always happy to discuss that. So um, that's been good so far. Allison. I don't know what to say. We have so many, we've had so many high highs, you know, we really dove deep, you might say. 
Yes. Uh, there was a moment when I had a sinking feeling about doing this show. Thought it might be I'm going to call it, this is not a drill. Wow. Because it's kind of our motto and like what went on with the Titanic. This is true. This is true. I mean, it's like, I think every time I read a Titanic book, I'm like, if I just read enough about this, I could have prevented it. I think that's where we all are. I was going to read you an Aleister Crawley poem, but please I feel do. like it's too much. No, really? please do it. Oh, yeah, go for okay. it. Should we go out with Alistair? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Um, so I want to read a portion of it because I, I was looking up Titanic poetry and like, I'll just say there's a range. Um, courage, catastrophe beyond belief, harden our hearts to fear and grief. The gods upon the Titan shower their high intolerable scorn. But no God knoweth in what hour a new Prometheus may be born. Courage, to his doom goes driving down, a crown of thorns is still a crown. No power of nature shall withstand, at last the spirit of mankind. It is not built upon the sand, it is not wastrel to the wind. Courage, disaster and destruction tend to taller triumph in the end. He's good. He's gonna make it. Wow. I'm rooting for you. <laughs> um... If you want to reach out to us with more Alistair Crawley, that's welcome. You know where to find us. You can message us on Patreon. We had so much fun with you on our first movie night. Oh, my God. I laughed so hard. Everyone who showed up, thank you. You absolutely, like, I was having such a down week, what with the Mm -hmm. postponement and all, and that really turned my week around. So thank you all for bringing me some very real joy in an otherwise strange time. Yes. So, Allison, if people have titanic conspiracies and they need to contact you where might they reach you yeah so i'm on live journal at uh titanic girl 19 <laughs> no i'm just kidding um i'm at allison horrocks on instagram and twitter and you can also reach us on the official pages um american girls podcast and a girls pod on twitter um if people want to reach out to you where should they find you you know, please reach me to discuss Jessica Simpson's A Public Affair and other deep cuts on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney and on Twitter at Mary Mahoney 123 I'm hyped about this. Can't wait. I am too. No, I am too. It's going to be May. Yeah. It's going to be May. <laughs>